Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. Last week, we started a series in Colossians 1. It'll take us through the end of Colossians 1 in eight weeks, and we're breaking it up into two sections. In the first section is Paul writing to a church, to a group of people that he'd never met before. We spent six weeks before this series, and we talked about the influence of our culture and the character of God. And whether or not our culture values the influence of the character of God. And that's an important note, an important conversation. How we as Christ followers are changing the culture around us as we bring the message of Jesus. But the other side of that coin is individually, what's the church's role in influencing you? When you show up on Sunday morning, what is our goal? Why do we gather instead of go to brunch on Sundays? Because some days that sounds like more fun if I'm being honest with you. What's the point of being here? And and what Paul does in Colossians 1, in the first 13, 14 verses, is he gives them reasons why the church should be influencing them. He gives them the ways in which the church should be influencing them as they gather together. And last week, we looked at the influence of grace. In verses 1 and 2, he writes these people that he'd never met before, and he says, here's the deal. I'm an apostle because God is gracious. You're called a saint, not a sinner, not you. You're called a saint, not a sinner, because God is gracious, right? It's this idea that grace binds us together and brings us to worship as the family of God. It's a beautiful picture. And so every time we gather as a church, we resound with the stories of grace because that's why we're here in the first place. Me and everybody else need the same amount of grace, the same amount of Jesus. This place exists because people are broken, not perfect. And so we talked about how we are influenced into the ways of grace. And today's conversation is talking about the influence of just thanks. How is a church influencing us towards being more thankful? I remember growing up and running into Christians and going to Bible college and seminary and watching all the Jesus films and videos. And one thing I didn't see a lot of was like Christians smiling a ton. They were serious because God is serious. But God also says the influence of the church supposedly wells up thanks within us. And so this morning, just bottom line up front, this morning, I want us to leave here more thankful than we showed up here. And I have three things that I think Paul talks about to get that job done. But before we do that, we have to know a little bit about the context of Colossae. Because as we dive into what's actually happening in that time and place, it kind of peels away some layers and gives me deeper insight into the thankfulness they're called to step into, walk into, be influenced by. So if you don't know, the church in Colossians is in a city called Colossae. And Colossae is about, it's in Turkey now, or would be Turkey now. It's about 100 miles away from Ephesus, which was a major seafaring trade hub. And and, and really, it hit its peak as a city, just a little history for you guys, in the 6th century BC before Christ. And for about 200 years, it had quite a heyday. There's a 5th century BC Greek philosopher and historian, and he said, when describing Colossae, it's a populous city, a wealthy city, and one of considerable magnitude. 
Several people said in the 6th, 5th, and 4th century BC that Colossae actually was one of the 6th most influential, wealthy, and powerful cities in the known world. Colossae was a big deal. The hard part is, by the time Paul writes this letter in 60-ish, 62 AD, it was a far cry from what it once was. I spent some time this week looking up Route 66, and um, it's an interesting study, I think, because Route 66, back before I was born in the 50s and 60s, was literally kind of the way you got from Chicago to the West Coast. A lot of articles I read referred to it as the Mother Road or the Main Street of America, and it had its heyday, and things were camped out alongside there, and people used to drive it and travel it, and it was a trip. And then what happened? Highways got built, and we forgot that road existed. And, and there's actually books published on pictures from what it was then and what it is now, and it's a far cry as roads are overgrown with grass and weeds. My point there is simply, Colossae is the overgrown grass and weed Route 66, there was two cities that sprung up about 11-ish to 15 miles on the east and west of Colossae. One's mentioned in the scripture in Laodicea, the other one Heropoli. And, and Colossae got big because they were big in the textile industry. And they had a road that went through there to Ephesus when Romans built roads that changed. And those two cities took away from Colossae and grew up and Colossae grew smaller. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but you got to get the picture of what's going on here. By um, the first century... There were two earthquakes that hit, one in 17 AD and one in about 60 to 62 AD around the time of Nero. And the city got destroyed and never really found itself again. So much so that by the year 400 AD, Colossae didn't even exist anymore. One commentator said, when the New Testament scholar said, Colossae, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. That's the city he's going to write to, and he's going to say, you know what, guys? Be thankful, <laughs> you know? Let me tell you something, man. As I get into this text and we start talking about this city, I think thankfulness is something that leaves us pretty quickly. I think thankfulness is something that is dependent upon experience. I think Paul says, you're in a dying city, and if you remember from last week, I'm sitting in prison, and I'm telling you an influence of you gathering together in your dying city should be thankfulness. And so my question coming into this text is what does Paul say is the concreteness of thankfulness that they can be amidst seemingly a chaotic, changing not in their favor culture as they die as a city and it's not going to get any better. So what Paul's going to do in our text is he's going to lay out three different things, three different reasons why they can be thankful. So today we're going to have three points in a prayer. It's Baptist Sunday at Crossroads, everybody. I am excited, all right? Um, we're going to get together and we're going to dive into three through eight and, and we're going to talk about the reasons Paul gives us, the reasons he gave them for being thankful when you gather regardless of what's happening in your city, how the church is influencing your soul. But before we do that, we have two goals at Crossroads on Sunday morning. One is we want to know God. And the very best way that we know to know God is to open the Bible because it paints the picture of his character and tells us of his goodness. It's the primary source material we have on a God that we can't see. And so we study the scriptures every single week, but we want to do more than just know about God so we can ace Jesus' jeopardy. We want to know God and experience him, which means we allow the knowledge of the character of God to, to permeate our souls so that God's influence might grow. We want to know and experience God this morning. 
And what that means is we've got some work to do together, me and you. That means when you open your scriptures, you're constantly asking the Holy Spirit that's present in this place to shape your spirit so that you might look more like Jesus when you leave, so that you might be more thankful today than when you walked in this space. So we're going to take some time and set our hearts right. I'm going to ask, um, as I pray, that you take a minute and just pray to yourself that the Spirit might do a work in you. Uh, I ask that you pray for me, that, you know, I do a good job, all right? So let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that we can gather here, that you've called us saints, that you remind us that you're good. I pray this morning as we open your text that you teach us, that either we hear things about you that are new or we're reminded of things that we knew. And I just pray that as we do that, you shape Holy Spirit, you shape our souls that we might walk and talk more like Jesus when we leave this place than when we showed up. If you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just silently ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in you this morning. Then I'd ask that you pray for me, that I clearly communicate the character of God that we see in the scripture, that I'm true to his goodness, that I'm true to his joy-producing effect in our communities as we gather, that I paint the picture of the God that we worship well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. We're in it together. Colossians chapter one, we're going to start in verse three, go all the way through to verse eight this morning. Let's dive right in. Paul picks up in verse three and he says, we always give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And we got to stop there for a second because here's a side note at the very beginning. We haven't even started. We have a side note. Today's going to be fun. But Paul when he talks about thanksgiving, this whole section in the Greek is one sentence, verse three through verse eight. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for his people. And he starts it by saying, when we pray, we always give thanks. He he, he has this intention when he writes this that we see throughout the scripture that tells us that desire follows discipline, not the other way around. What he says is that I am thankful because every time when I pray, I give thanks. It's this beautiful picture that the gospel reminds us of, that Paul reminds us of, that oftentimes if you don't feel like giving thanks, pray and give thanks anyway, and watch your desire of thankfulness well up in you as you're disciplined to be thankful. I was watching a a video this week, a short video of, I don't know if you guys know who Chris Pratt is. He is one of the Avenger people, I think. He was also in Parks and Rec. He had a amazing transformation where he lost like 50 pounds and became this very attractive man that makes millions and millions of dollars, right? And I guess recently he hurt himself, and so he can't work out like he's used to. And he posted this video. It's actually really good. It's a 20-second clip or something like that. And he gets in front of his little phone, and he said, hey, guys, here's the deal. I sometimes don't want to work out. He said, I know I'm supposed to for a living. He said, I've been recently injured, and so I really can't work out. He said, so this morning, I was supposed to like walk on the Stairmaster for 45 minutes. And he said, it was crazy. Didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it at all. And he just explains that it wasn't until, and he said, minute 38, that I finally felt like, yeah, I kind of want to do this right now, you know? 
And he just talks about how even when it comes to something as simple as stair mastering and working out, oftentimes, oftentimes, desire follows discipline. That's what Paul's saying here, that if you want to be a more thankful person, pray and give thanks more and watch that grow up inside of you. In those moments that you don't feel like giving thanks, Paul says, I do it every time I pray. And here he's referencing tangentially the Jewish prayer guide. And we talked about it with Daniel, but Jews were called to pray three times a day. And it wasn't legalistic. It wasn't like if you prayed four times, you got bonus God points that day. And if you prayed two times, he held it against you and you had to make up for it the next day. He's not counting calories with prayer, you know? What he's doing, why the Jewish people prayed three times a day, was because it was symbolic that everywhere they go, they remember that God sustains, that God guides, that God protects, that God provides, that God is worthy of giving thanks to. And so Paul says, out of the gate, he says, if you want to be a thankful people, every time you pray, give thanks and watch it grow inside of you. And then he's going to give you three reasons why he specifically is thankful when he prays for them. Verse three and four, we always give thanks to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints. So he says, I am thankful for you since the day that I heard that you made Jesus your Lord. You trusted Christ. In order to understand how big that statement is, you have to understand how big the Roman Empire was. So here's a little more history for you this morning because you're begging for it with your eyes. The Roman Empire was massive. The Roman Empire was about 4,200 miles across. The United States is roughly 3,300 miles across. It spread from what is now England to what is now India. It was massive. And it did two things that were pretty monumental. The first one is they built a whole lot of roads. First Roman road was built around 300-ish BC. And by the time their empire culminated, they had 50,000 miles of roads. Here's the deal. I think we take roads for granted. I think we don't understand what roads bring to any civilization, organization, or people. I think we think of roads and we think, do I pay the toll and go on the bottom of the 635 or do I go for the freebie and sit in traffic and stay on top, right? That's what we think of when we think roads. In the first century world, in that world, if you didn't have roads, you couldn't go places. So what that means is you never left your city, you never left your tribe, you never left your village. When they built 50,000 miles of roads, it literally opened the world up for the first time. It caused animals to go from one city to another because terrain wasn't an issue. It caused people to have a low-cost way of traveling. It's the first example we have of globalization in the world. Think about how the internet has shaped and changed how we experience the world. Think about how flight has done that for us. We can go now to places that we would have never been able to go to 50 and 60 years ago and know about things we would never know 50 and 60 years ago. Cheaper. My mom on Wednesday morning sent me a video when I woke up and it was 92 degrees in October in Texas for some reason. Um, And she was on the top of a mountain in the Swiss Alps right? I have not talked to her since. <laughs> I'm debating on whether I'm going to talk to her for a while. You got to be held in a little bit of contempt for that text, you know? And she said sweet things, but I know what she was really trying to do. And um, what I love about it was, you know, they've been in Europe for a couple of weeks and they're coming back tomorrow, but I don't think their parents would ever imagine just jumping on a plane and going to Scotland and Germany and Switzerland that easily. And the parents, before their parents, never would have thought that. Her father, her grandfather, excuse me, came over from Ireland on a boat, you know? So what 
Rome did for the world was literally open the world up for the first time ever, and it provided for its people in a way that never been provided by before. But it didn't stop with the roads. Along with the roads came this concept of Pax Romana, or Rome's peace. From roughly 2730 BC to about 180 or so AD was the pinnacle of this. And when I say pinnacle, I mean outside of one small skirmish in about AD 70, no fighting broke out in all of Rome. And when I say all of Rome, I'm going to list the countries, modern day countries Rome covered. Listen to this. Rome was UK, France, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Australia, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. Now, can you remember a week where war didn't break out in all those countries combined? And for about 150 years, and actually about 400 total, you had a massive amount of peace that came over the world. Here's why that's important. It's because roads don't matter if you're going to get mugged when you walk down them at night, you know? So what Rome did was they provided an incredible amount of not just access to the world, but ability to get it in the world. They provided for their people and they protected their people. One commentator said, never before had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and never had they enjoyed such prosperity. Here's the point. I think as a people, I think we trust ultimately what provides for and what protects us. I think we trust what provides for us and what protects us and nothing had ever done a better job in the known world to that point than Rome. And I know that because I have a 13-month daughter and, and there's this book out there that I never read to her. It's called Everything is Mama because it's a competition and I want her to say dad more. Um, but, but literally, every time my daughter needs anything, she just starts yelling mama because her mother provides for and protects her, supplies the food she needs to live, and is her biggest champion in the world. She looks to her mother for direction and guidance and authority. So in the first century world, if you were a citizen of Rome, and even if you weren't, you'd walk around and you'd greet people by saying something like, Caesar is Lord, you know? Because Caesar provided and protected for the most flourishing we'd seen in the human world up to that point. So when Paul writes these people, when Paul writes them and he says, I give thanks for you from God our Father because our same Lord is Jesus Christ. When he writes and he says, we call something Lord that's different than Caesar, that was a huge deal in that world. And not a whole lot of people did that because we talked about it last week, but there was a moment in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9 where the gospel was forced to spread. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not a majority owner, you're a minority holder in the first century world. And so what Paul does is say, I know that Jesus is my Lord and I am thrilled anytime I run into or talk to or write to anybody who shares those beliefs. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. And she went to college. She grew up in Albuquerque and went to college at uh, Mizzou, about a thousand miles away. And we were talking about it, and it kind of resonated with me because I grew up here and picked up, packed up, went to Chicago. And I realized that the Midwest is not the same as the South, everybody. And, and she said it was a little ways into her freshman year, and she was really, really homesick. And she went to this high school called Manzano High School, this purple shirt, she said, with white lettering. There's 11 high schools in Albuquerque at the time. So she's walking on the Mizzou campus, and she sees a ways away, like across the quad or whatever, a ways away, she sees this purple and she instantly recognized it as her hometown high school shirt with the white lettering. 
And she said, I yelled and ran towards this man. Didn't know who she was, who he was. She said, I scared him to death. But I yelled and ran and I said, oh my gosh, you're from my hometown. She said, that was what I really needed that day because I was so homesick because Paul calls us family. He says in verse two, brothers and sisters, it's a motif throughout the New Testament. Jesus calls us family. Here's what family does. Family is a shared set of experiences that shapes the way we see the world, whether you love your family or not. And so when we talk about family, what Paul is saying is now through Jesus, through the grace of God, we have a shared set of experiences that shapes the way we see the world and that is rare. So when I find that in others, when I find that in others halfway around the world, that gives me thanks because I know I'm not the only one sitting in this prison that believes in something that's better than what I see all around me. Paul says, I give thanks because you and I have the same Lord and that is not common in these parts. So every time. He writes this letter and he writes the letters in Philippi and he writes the other letters in Ephesus. He says, I am thankful for you because what we share is so valuable and I need to be reminded of that value. I need to be reminded that there are others. So, so if we're talking about why we have thankfulness as we gather, why the church influences you to be more thankful, it's because we gather together and we remind ourselves among the chaos of culture that we have a shared Lord that we have a shared authority and it's not your boss and it's not how much money you make and it's not our president. It's something bigger and better than all those things. We have a shared identity that comes from a shared God. So Paul writes this letter to a dying church when he's in prison and says, I'm thankful for you regardless of what happens tomorrow because I know who your Lord is today. It's a beautiful expression of what happens when we gather together as saints. I think about the ways that sometimes I just don't even think about that being something that should spur on my thankfulness. I, I pass by, honest to God, I don't, I'm just going to throw a number out there, but it's got to be higher because this is the most concentrated church area that I know of outside of Wheaton, Illinois, where I went to, to grad school. There's got to be at least 30 churches that I pass in my commute driving here on Sunday mornings and every single day. I mean, at least. And that's just from 407 to here, you know? And here's the deal. I drive by those churches and it does nothing for me. I think Paul would say, drive by those churches and with everyone that believes in Jesus, that should well up thanksgiving in your heart. You know? What if that's how we drove by the churches? And every time we drove by and we prayed for them, we said, thank you that they exist. Thank you that you exist, that you know Jesus amidst a world that seemingly doesn't care to. So Paul says, I give thanks because we have the same Lord. And he goes on. And he says in verse five, your faith and love has arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. So one, he says, we share a Lord and I give thanks for that. And two, he says, we share a hope. Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. And he's really going to talk about the hope that comes from Jesus. And so it's not only knowing that the Lord exists and worshiping the Lord, it's trusting in the hope that the Lord gives and when we talk about hope, there's, there's two separate kinds of ways that the Bible talks about hope, that we talk about hope. There's a subjective hope and there's an objective hope. Let me break that down for you. Subjective hope is an attitude or feeling of anticipation that things will work out as desired. When I watch the Cowboys game this afternoon, I will have a subjective hope experience. In the first quarter, I'm going to be sure that we're going to win. And if we fumble the ball in the first drive, I guarantee you I'll be using all of God's words and saying, it's over, shut it off, pack it up, let's go home. Okay? We'll have this moment where my hope fluctuates with my surroundings, situations, and circumstances. Subjective hope, it's something that can and will and does change. Let's take it to this church. We've had a really good year. We've had a really good year as a church. 
We've seen growth that we haven't seen in a long time. It's been really fun. It's been really challenging. It's been all the things. I love all the new faces and the new people. We just did a baby dedication, a parent dedication, excuse me, in the first service. We did baptism last week. I I love it. I love the fact that we are seeing more of God's working out his influence in our community through CBC. That has been amazing. That is a subjective hope that we're seeing become a reality. Here's the difference. Objective hope, then, is a reality to which subjective hope aspires. What I mean by that is God has done some amazing things at CBC in the last year or two, and and I'm thankful. But in 200 years, if we're still here, and CBC no longer is a church, God's influence will still be felt in this community. In 200 years, if this city's still around and the village is no longer a church, I'm just kidding, that's not possible. (laughs) I'm kidding, my point here is simply subjective hope is every hope I have for CBC, that we can grow and know who Jesus is, that we can make disciples, that we can share people and the, the, that we can show people the love of Jesus and share his good ways. The object of hope is knowing that whether CBC is here or not doesn't affect God's ability to grow and change lives. And so what Paul talks about when he's talking about the hope that they have is literally he's talking about an object of hope. That's why he says in the next part of our text, you have heard about in the message, you've heard about the message of truth, the gospel. That word truth there literally means reliable. So you've heard about this reliable message, this concrete message, this literally the Greek word there means like lasting message that's not going anywhere. First Peter talks about it like this in verse three through four. Blessed be the God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That is, who, an inherit, who into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, it is reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy. Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, what he's saying is that our hope isn't in necessarily, if we see the gospel expand through this church, it's in something much bigger and much more concrete. Because subjective hope is shallow if that's all that we hope in. Objective hope doesn't go anywhere because it's based in the character of God. Subjective hope, if it's If I put my hope in my marriage or my 401k or my boss or my country or what, fill in the blank there, those things will change. What Paul is saying is we have a hope in something that is unchanging and unfailing regardless of how we experience that hope in the day to day. And Paul's saying, I'm thankful for that. That no matter what, this is gonna happen. Today I might not bring my A game, my B game. It might be a C game sermon from Charlie Ridenour, And he's saying that shouldn't rob you of your joy because it doesn't change who God is today. So he's saying we gather together and we have hope because we know that it's not going anywhere. One commentator said the gospel means hope here is an objective word that is subjective power. So Paul says in verse five, your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you. So he's thankful for the hope that they have the objective reality that in the end God wins and we can't affect or change that outcome. And that his future promises have have given us hope that's concrete because of it's a reflection of his character. But he says, here's something you have to know that your hope does something to your present, that your future hope shapes your present action. He says your faith and love have arisen. That that word have arisen there is in the perfect tense, which means it was a completed action in the past that affects the present. Best example that we can all probably get on board with is 9-11. 
So something happened in the past that forever changed the way that we travel and will forever change the way that we travel. So Paul is saying, your faith and your love have arisen because you have faith in Jesus, because of your hope. So he's saying, because you trusted in Jesus, now this faith and love arose because of something that did happen. What he's saying is your faith and your love are now directly linked to God's good promises of future. What he's saying is God defines your faith and your love in your community. And then how you live those things out in the day-to-day is is, is affected by what we believe happens in the end of days with God, that he defines those things. So again, you, your faith doesn't go anywhere if you have a bad day because it's defined by God's concreteness and not our subjective experience of hope. Two, he's saying, and I love this, he says that not only your faith, but how you love one another isn't defined by what you see or experience. It's defined by how God loves you. And the idea of love permeates this whole section at the very end of our text. He says, I love Epaphras because Epaphras did my work among you. And he said, he's a faithful minister on behalf of Christ. He says, who also told us of your love in the spirit. So what he's saying is that there is a love based in a future hope that you're supposed to live out in the present day. One commentator, one writer that I really, really like is a guy named Scott McKnight. And he defined love in this context by by saying love is always defined by God. God defines love because he is love. And and our love is the love that's defined by God. And he said, here's what God's love is. I love his definition. He said, God's covenant love is the commitment of presence, advocacy, and protection. And his commitment entails both summoning his people into and providing for their transformation into Christ-likeness. He said, you want to know what God's love is? His covenant love meaning it's not going anywhere ever, ever, ever. His covenant love meaning I can't undo this love. His faithful love is the presence, advocacy, and protection and his commitment that all those things are used so that you might look more like Jesus. This is the love of the Holy Spirit that only comes from knowing and trusting in God's future hope. I'm going to go to the place now that I think every pastor in the country is going to go to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, We had just the most fantastic example of that in Dallas this week. Probably followed the trial of the cop that killed the black man in his apartment. And I'm not going to get on either side. I'm staying away from that bad boy because I'm wiser than I look a little bit. But I think what shook us, and as it happened, we were texting videos back and forth on staff, was when his brother got up there. And again, regardless of what you believe, this kid just lost his brother. And if somebody shot my brother, I'd be pretty mad. (laughs) Somebody shot my brother unjustifiably, I'd be pretty mad. Regardless of the situations and circumstances that led up to it, he got on the stand. He said, can I talk to this woman on the stand, which you don't have to do. And he sat down in the chair. If you haven't seen it, again, just Google it. It went viral. And he said, look, you've hurt us, and I can't tell you the ways you've hurt us. He said, but. He said, but I don't want you to go to jail. He said, I want you to know Jesus, because I think that's the best thing for you. Okay. You don't get that kind of love unless you know God. That is a Holy Spirit-inspired love. That is a love that says, I'm going to advocate for you in presence and protection, and I'm going to commit that everything I do is for you looking like Christ-like in everything you do. That is the kind of love that Paul talks about here that's only rooted in the objective hope that we have that God is who he says he is and loves us the way he says he does and will do what he says he will do. Paul says, I've seen that, and that wells up hope within me, that wells up thankfulness within me. It's a beautiful depiction, it's a beautiful depiction of the community of God, the church, when they gather together and place their hope in something that doesn't change. And so Paul says, I am thankful for you 
that we have the same Lord, that we share the same Lord, because that is a rarity seemingly. I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that we have the same hope because that shapes how we live in the present, our future hope. And he says, I am so thankful for the gospel. Keep reading in 3, 4, 5, and 6. He says, you've heard about the message of truth, the gospel that's come to you. Just as in the entire world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, so it's also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it. And something you have to know when Paul talks about gospel is that when he talks about gospel, it's more than just an idea in his epistles. When I, when I hear gospel, I think, you know, good news. I think altar call. I think, you know, all the things, raising the head, bowing the eyes, all that kind of sort of thing. When I think gospel, I think trusting in Jesus and going to heaven one day. When Paul says the word gospel, it's more than an idea and a decision. It's a movement of God. When Paul talks about gospel, it's more than just something that will happen one day. It's something that's happening in the middle of their days. N.T. Wright says the gospel is not primarily either an invitation or a technique for changing people's lives. It's a command to be obeyed and a power let loose in the world. And I know that's true because Paul says, you've heard about the message of truth, the gospel that's come to you. And that word heard there in a Hebrew sense, which Paul is using, that word heard there means something more than just, I listened to a message that a pastor gave one time and I think I'm on board. That word heard there comes from the Hebrew Shema, which literally means not just to hear, but to do. We see it throughout the Old Testament. It's a much longer conversation. But we see it in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, listen, Shema Israel, the Lord is good. He's one. Love the Lord with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. Meaning that if you're going to listen to God, it implies that you do stuff with what you listen to. In, in Genesis 29, a story about a woman named Leah. She couldn't have a kid and she prayed. And it says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord Shema'd me, heard me that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So he named him Simon or Simeon or Shimeon, literally a derivative of God heard me, so he did something. I think the most clear-cut example in the Old Testament is Exodus 19. God's talking to his people, and he says, now if you obey me fully and keep my commands, and in the Hebrew, that word obey literally is shema, shema. If you listen, listen to me. If you carefully listen, then you'll obey my commands. If you obey my commands, you've heard me. There's an inextricable link between hearing and doing in the Hebrew. They're both two sides of the same coin. It's that classic example of when you tell your teenage kid, take out the trash, and they say, I will. You should take out the trash. They say, I will. You say, did you hear me? They said, I did. No, no, they did not because the trash is still in the can and they're still on the couch, you know? It's the expression in Hebrew that Paul says that you've heard the gospel, which means that you haven't just heard it, but you're doing something about it. It's not just an idea, it's a movement. And here's what he's thankful for. This is what the gospel does. Just as in the entire world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So it's also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it. And here's something we have to know about the gospel. The movement of God is when people live out the ways of Jesus, we see God move. One commentator said, where truth is recognized and its command obeyed, it bears fruit. It's hard because sometimes we're going to sit here and say, well, I don't see God moving as much as I want. You might not. Again, I go back to the objective hope that we have. Two, I'd say as Christians, we're not perfect at living out the gospel yet. I'm not perfect at living out the gospel. So if we see faultiness in the gospel growing, I'm not blaming God. I'm saying maybe I'm not perfect at living out the gospel. It's, let's go with the football analogy again. It's going to be 315. They're going to call a play. I'm not going to agree with the play, and it's not going to work. And I'm going to blame the ginger because I always blame Jason Garrett, okay? And what's going to happen in his post-game post press conference, is he's going to say, man, you know what? We drew up the perfect play. 
I put the guys in place to make the play. They just didn't execute. And so you didn't see the fruit from the play that I drew up because they didn't execute the play that I drew up. The point simply is as we see in the New Testament and as we see in our world, when people press into and live into the gospel, God changes our situations, circumstances. God does things. The ways of Jesus are powerful and they call people to God because we see an overflow of his goodness. And this text, when it says bear fruit, goes back to literally what he told Adam in Genesis 1. It goes back to what he told Noah in Genesis 9. It goes back to what he told the patriarchs in the last half of Genesis and the nation of Israel and the church. He says, you, you are to, to bear fruit and multiply. You are to spread my goodness throughout the canvas of creation. It's been the charge of God for the people of God all along. It's what God does. And so he says, Paul says, this is why I'm thankful. Because I see God changing things. I know he will because that's what the gospel does. It's a movement that we're called into as the people of God. A couple weeks ago, somebody sent me a link to a documentary which I didn't know existed and I didn't know about. It kind of blew me away a little bit. And, and it's called um, Sheep and Wolf's Clothing, I think it was. And it, it literally was, this documentary is all about how um, Iran has one of the fastest growing churches in the world. I'll, I'll quote to you from the doc documentary title. It says, the fastest growing church in the world has taken root in one of the most unexpected and radicalized nations on the earth. The outstanding two-hour documentary about the revival that has taken place inside Iran. The Iranian awakening is a rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property, has no buildings, has no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. It said God is moving powerly, powerfully inside Iran because that's what God does when the people of God press into his goodness and his ways. It's a beautiful reminder from Paul sitting in prison to a church that's in a city that's seen better days that when God shows up places through the people of God, he does stuff and he acts. It's an example of us hoping in his objective um, promises, saying we're gonna see it fulfilled here and now. N.T. Wright says God is doing through the gospel what he always intended to do. He's sowing good seed in the world and preparing to reap harvest of human lives recreated to reflect his glory. So Paul comes to this church and he says, I'm thankful for three things when I think of you guys. I'm thankful that we share a Lord because I need to know that I have family out there that has a shared set of experiences that shape who I am and who I'm becoming. He says, I'm really thankful that we have a shared hope because it's not just a belief in something not concrete, but I know it is concrete, the objective hope we have that one day God wins. And thirdly, he's saying, and I'm, I'm so thankful because I know where the gospel is heard, pressed into and lived out, God's doing things. And regardless of whether it looks like you think it looks, I know that's true. I'm thankful for you. And so when we gather together on Sunday mornings, every time, every single time, hopefully we hit those high notes, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that, that we can call each other family. I'm thankful that we have a shared hope and I'm thankful that God does stuff when we give our lives to him. It, it, it deepens the idea of what church is in the first place. And what I love about it at the end is he goes back to his relationship with Epaphras. He says in verse seven, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow slave, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. What he says at the end of this, Paul does, is that these things that I'm thankful for, the gospel makes sense in the context of relationship because we seek the same Lord, we look to a singular hope, and we share in a life-changing gospel. We can do that together. And sometimes it's hard to be thankful because we forget that we have things worth being thankful for. But he says, as you gather together as a church, 
be thankful for these things because I am for you. This week I thought about um, Andy Zapata. He, uh, if you guys don't know, I think most of you do, we, before we made better decisions and upgraded roommates to wives, we lived together. And um, it was probably, I don't know, four years ago now. <laughs> and he had just taken um, a part-time gig leading at a church plant. And this job came open. And Andy and I had done a couple things together. I'd had a couple speaking gigs and, and he came and did worship with me. And I was like, man, this would be really cool if we could do this thing together. And so I asked him, I said, hey, will you think about leading worship at Crossroads? And he'd literally, like six, eight months into this church plant, and he wrestled with it because he just took this gig and he didn't want to disappoint these people. And he asked one of his friends, a worship leader too, a good friend of his, and actually who knows, who knows me. And he said, what should I do? And his friend looked at him and said, go do ministry with your friend. It's richer, it's deeper, it's fuller. <laughs> it gives more joy. And I love that. Because that's the purpose of the church. As we gather together, we get to tell the story of what God does inside the context of the relationships we've built over time so we can see God changing us. The slow process of God changing us. It's why Jesus, when he gathered together 12 people, if you're gonna take over the world with a movement, I suggest you use more than 12. Jesus used 12 and he said, hey guys, come eat with me. And his last meal with them, he broke some bread and he drank some wine. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And you don't understand what's about to happen. You don't understand what I'm doing. You will. He says, but every time you eat this meal, think of this moment. And part of that is to think of the atoning sacrifice that he made on the cross. But the other part of that is to remember and be thankful. It's called different things in different churches. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Some people call it a version of the Passover meal in the Catholic Church and Anglicans and Lutheran churches. They call it um, the Eucharist. Literally, that word comes from the Greek word that means thankfulness. That's why they call it that. And so today, I'm reminded of the beauty of being thankful because we get to gather together. I'm reminded that I share with all of you guys and you with me, I shared authority in Jesus as my Lord, a shared common hope that isn't going anywhere, and a shared knowledge that God is doing something in the middle of us if we press into his ways. And I need that sometimes when I can't see things to be thankful for. And so we're going to take communion. And, and communion sometimes, a lot of times, it's, it's serious and it's a sobering reminder that Jesus is good and died for us. But it's also a reminder that we should be thankful because of what Jesus did. And because the gospel makes sense in the context of relationships. And so as we take communion today, I encourage you, take it with a friend, husband, wife, somebody you don't know, and just say thanks. <laughs> say thanks that we get to live life in pursuit of Christ together. And hopefully as we remind ourselves of that goodness, it wells up inside of us a thankfulness that can't be taken away. And that could be an influence of this church each and every time we get together. So let's take communion and be thankful.